Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from what is today a bit of a cloudy day in the Pacific Northwest after some really unexpected sunshine. November is normally very rainy here, and we've really had the sun, but I welcome the rains, quite honestly, because the rainforest needs the rains. And perhaps that is an appropriate metaphor this morning for the guest that I'm about to bring on the line in a moment. Dr. Robert L. Weber, who really goes by Bob, and his book that just came out is The Spirituality of Age, A Seeker's Guide to Growing Older, a book that he co-authored with Carol Orsborn. And Bob is really what one would characterize as an expert on aging, I would say. Um, he has a very, um, very comprehensive background, and, and I will tell you that that, that includes um, being a professor of psychology part-time, an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He's a faculty member of Massachusetts General Hospital's Department of Psychiatry. He received the 2014 American Society on Aging FORSA Award. That's the Forum on Religion, Spirituality, and Aging. And it recognized him in many ways. And he's earned many honors, and he has been a Jesuit, which is really interesting. But what I want to say most of all about this person is that Bob has written an honest and authentic book in which he and his co-author, Carol, have reflected upon their own lives. And yes, those have been very successful lives, and and this book is, is absolutely wonderful. It's working with me as we speak. And I'll say at the outset, um, just as I told Bob before the show, I'm 51 years old, and And at my age, this book is very meaningful because many of us at this age face certain crossroads in our lives. They can come up many times. So, But I really want to say that this book is 
a passage of authenticity is what it is. And I am just so very delighted to welcome Bob Weber on the show. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Susan. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, it, it's really wonderful to have you here. And and as I was saying in the introduction, no one can read this book, really, I feel, without having it work with us. And I'm feeling its work upon me as we speak, because what you've done here is you have included, um, you're using questioning in a very interesting way. And perhaps we should start with that, Bob. The the value of questioning and and becoming comfortable with even the paradox of questioning, and I wonder if you could start there, and then we'll talk more about um, how you came to write this, and maybe that'll be interwoven into your answer. Okay. Well, let me pick up on something you said in the introductory process about being an expert. Okay. My definition my definition of an expert is someone who knows the answers he doesn't know or she doesn't know. Ah. Not the questions to which you have and know answers and are certain. Yeah. I think the expert is someone who is willing to grovel around, grapple with the material of questions that are not so easily answered. Yeah. And certainly, you know, as aging begins to take hold, and as the awareness of it increases over time, uh, I think for, for both Carol and me, we, we discovered that we had to be willing to bear with uncertainties, bear with that which was beyond our knowledge, beyond facts, and go with that. Our, the person who wrote our foreword did a beautiful job and wrote down, Summons to a Leap of Faith. That was the title of his foreword. Yes. And in a way, that's what we ask people to do is to engage with the questions as we have. So if people come to our book, Susan, you know, it's not to get answers like, oh, if I only do this, or this is the right thing for me. What we disclose in our book is our own struggles, our own questions, our own anxieties and fears, and our willingness to stay with them, which continues to this day. Having written this book, I'm still questioning. I'm still wondering. And I think that it is in the grappling with the questions that you get somewhere. As as the poet Rilke said so, so well, and I think this is what we have learned for ourselves and what we encourage the listeners to do or those who read our book, Rilke said, live the questions until you live your way through to an answer. Not Bob's way, not Carol's way, not Susan's way, your way. Don't do it in isolation. Talk with others, but you need to come up with your own answer, and you need to fashion your questions. What we hope, Susan, I think, is that our book will help people to reconfigure their questions. You know, consider how you've been asking yourself certain questions about your aging, and maybe start to ask them anew, and see if then you get a different vision of things. That, I think, is what the questioning is about. And questioning is the same root as quest, you know? It's a Oh, search. I love that. Yes. It, yes. It's really a quest. And when you quest, you're seeking the subtitle of our book. We are seekers. You and I, we are bookends for the generation of seekers, the baby boom generation, Susan, right? Oh, very much bookends. so. 
We are the bookends. First yes. year and last year. <laughs> yes, it can be strange being the last year. I'll tell you this, Bob, because we kind of feel like, you know, where do we belong? I mean, I guess that's kind of a, a question I've asked myself many times is, is, is we don't really, at my age, we don't really fit into to any generation. But I will tell you, I grew up with a lot, with many, I was the youngest in a big family. And um, I, so I tend to gravitate towards the baby boomers in that way. Um, but what I saw in your book, Bob, and, and it is doing its work with me. This is not an instantaneous process, as you well know. And, and I come to this show in some ways very raw because mm-hmm. your book is an opening. It, it opens a person up. And um, I, I invite those who encounter this book to allow themselves to be opened, because that's what I'm feeling right now, um, coming out of reading it. Um, so much so, it's almost, I'm just going to flow with the questions today, which I often do, but um, it's an opening. That That's what mm-hmm. these questions are. Right. Right. Yeah, and I was thinking if I could just add a quick note here. Yes, do. You know, the title of your show, you know, Frontier Beyond Fear. I think as you and I and those who are listening and the readers who might read choose to read this book will discover you're going to get scared. Yes. You're going to get scared. There's no question about that. Um, because aging, as Betty Davis said, is not for sissies. Yes. It is not. However... You know, William Faulkner put it so well. He said, be scared. You can't help that. Yeah. But don't be afraid. You know, I have to tell you something about this show, Bob. Um, This show's been going on a while. When I first started it, I was more idealistic about fear. I have Mm -hmm. to tell you. and, And, you know, this is important about the work that you're doing, and not just in your book, but in your own life. I mean, in what you convey is my own understanding of fear has evolved in the years since I first defined the show. And so I've even modified the description more than, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't done it in a while, but I've, I, at first, you know, it seemed like, yes, you know, we can get beyond all fear. And then suddenly, as I started to have these conversations about fear, and this very much is reflected in your work, work I realized that, Working with fear is a process unto itself, in a way, and um, it, it's it's not easily defined. And so, um, even the the title of my show is filled with questions. Right, right. Very much yeah. so. Yeah, and I, I now, think you have to trust. You have to trust the fear. Yeah. That it's going to teach you something. Yes. Yes. Now, you say something at the outset about relaxing one's grip on the wheel. And I will tell you, that's a message that seems to come to me more and more in different ways. And and I do believe God, Spirit, the universe, however we choose to characterize that in our own way, as you say, we each have our own way, um, that's a message that keeps coming to me. Relax your grip on the wheel. And I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit, too. Well, when uh, I think when we're first learning how to drive, we think we have more control when we clutch it 
really hard. Yes. But actually, what happens then is all of our reflexes and all of the flexibility we need to really maneuver the car effectively, um, we can't we can't control it as well. And yeah. in fact, the thing I discovered when I learned how to drive, and, and I guess I'm learning how to drive my life a little differently now without white knuckle gripping it, is that the more I relaxed, the car had an ability in itself, it was well-engineered, to stay on the road. My dad taught me that. Uh-huh. He said, don't, don't clutch so hard. Notice, watch, it's going to stay on the road. Unless you jerk it to the right or left really harsh, harshly. Yes. And that's what I find is that, you know, I just need to trust my own life process. What, whatever it is, if I'm hitting bumps or hitting bumps in the road, you know, in my own life, fear bumps, I just, I don't clutch tighter in order to navigate them. I, I, I loosen up. And those bumps all of a sudden become more navigable. Yeah. More navigable. Because our first inclination is to, to white-knuckle it. I thought Gail Sheehy's uh, endorsement of our book was just marvelous. You know, the one mm-hmm. who wrote Passages and Daring My Passages. Mm-hmm. Are you a boomer? You and I are. On a white-knuckled ride trying to shift into reverse on aging, we all try. This knowing book will relax your grip. The authors illuminate the path of spiritual growth, growth, leading us to come to terms with where we have failed and to make the passage to what really matters. Yes. And that's not white-knuckle yes. driving. Yes. Yes. You know, it, it's. I think one of the first things that invited me into a deeper relationship with your book is, is really exploring our own denial. And, um, you know, I found this through through Carol's words and, and yours. And I will tell you, as someone who who is 51 years old, I had a passage not too long ago where I chose not to color my hair anymore. In fact, the, the picture of me on my show page shows me when my hair was colored, and now I'm gradually growing it out. And I have had amazing experiences with other people either telling me, you know, you can color that gray that's showing up right there. Or even literally someone, I was eating dinner with someone who literally plucked one of my gray hairs. And I said, stop that. <laughs> what the, I was just, you know, just out of the blue, you know, plucked it, reached across. And, and this person, I, I have a very good relationship with a friend, and she understood. We, we then had a discussion about it, actually, how I love this. I love that my hair has some gray. And, and, and there's something really important, and I'm, I'm happy that I started to find this, and yet so many of us, we don't, we don't see this. And, and how can we celebrate who we are at our age and see, see the beauty in it, both physically and in a deeper way? Exactly. I think, uh, I thought Eleanor Roosevelt put it very well, Susan. She said, the beauty of youth is an accident of nature. The beauty of age is a work of art. Yes. But our culture doesn't encourage us to view age as art, you know, with the wrinkles, with the failing gait, with all of the different ways in which aging takes effect. We somehow are taught, because of the values within our larger culture and society, there's something wrong with that. Yes. And yet, there is something beautiful about that. Something happens when you get older. For me, what's happened is some of the things that used to matter have fallen away. They've gotten sculpted away, in a sense, by the events of my life. 
the bases on which I built my sense of worth. I was a an athlete from high school through college. I played football and baseball right through college and you know had a great deal of success in those sports. And yet what I I discovered is and even then I knew it, but I didn't have the freedom at the time. They weren't all me. There was a part of me that never came out. Yeah. And it's only been as I've gotten older that I've been able to let go, just let go of those aspects of myself that were, in a sense, what we in psychology call the false self. Yes. Society bolsters our attempt to fashion and maintain in place a false sense of self. This is, you know, I am what I am because of what I can do. I am what I am because of what I have. I am who I am really only because other people say you're great. Is that the way we want to have ourselves valued? I don't. I hope others yes. don't either. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, I, I felt that even, you know, it, it was tempting in a way when I gave the introduction for you, Bob, not to even mention, you know, oh, you know, he's from Harvard. And, and you know, he's done all these amazing things. It, it adds legitimacy, and it's wonderful that you, you have this, this background that you bring to us, and yet, you know, something that comes through in this book is um, how many of us who've done various things, whatever they may be, um, those things can become almost a kind of, I, I think you call it, we build these fortresses that are like prisons in a way. Right. Um, and and who who are we really in the midst of all these things, and and. What was projected, too, you know, when we're young, you talk about your parents, your father having certain goals for you. And maybe that's another good entryway here into into some other discussion is the things that others project upon us that can happen and then who we really are when we're not allowing ourselves to internalize those projections. Right. Well, you know, it, it's it's an important part of our development. I mean, my father's dreams for me was that I would be a priest. Growing up Catholic in pre-Vatican II, you know, uh, the way I guess it could be put is that in which na- nothing greater could be conceived was than to have a son who was a priest. Yes. And I am very much, I still feel I function very much in certain ways as a priest does in my role as a psychologist, but yes. not with the designation formally of that and i you know at times i wish i could be doing that but i know that's not me this is who i am and i think it took um moving into what one of my favorite psychological writers uh called you know the boom years becoming one's own man and i guess i get with for women it would be bow years becoming one's own woman where you all of a sudden say, yeah, what you wanted me to be, some good things came out of that. However, there's also restriction in my having become, in a sense, partly false to my true self. Yes. And now I feel like I, I feel like more of a human being. I think my much of our lives, my life, and I dare say yours at times, Susan, and those who are listening in, you know, we function, we're human doings. Yeah not human beings. Yeah. You know, we do, do, do so that we can get accolades, so that we can have, so that we can, uh, you know, accomplish something. Uh, the achievements 
are what drive us early on. And I certainly strove very hard. I mean, I did well in high school, well in college, well beyond. But, you know, now, as the great Thomas Aquinas said after writing one of the great theological uh, theses, all of it's so much straw. Uh, So much straw. And now I feel like I'm a human being when I'm on the street saying hello to people, when I'm with my wife or with friends or with family. I feel like they're they're getting me now. They're getting me, the man who's capable of incredible joy and incredible sadness at times. But they get the real me. And I am so glad to have come out of that prison to some extent. And again, more to be done. More to be done. Yeah. And that's really our vocation in life, I think. You know, we can, the old Catholic expression was, you know, to have a vocation, maybe to marriage, maybe to priesthood, a call to be something. The real call in all of us is to become ourselves yeah. and be able to push aside what, you know, the culture or family or church or whomever tell us to be our teachers. That's the goal. And I think a good teacher really does that for a student. You know, they educate them. They lead them out of themselves. They lead the best of them out. They don't just stuff stuff in. Yes. That's what I hope you this know, book will do to people. It, it it does. And, you know, I'm noticing something, Bob, as I talk to more people and as I observe what spiritual publishers are putting out these days is I'm observing a lot more questioning and honesty. Instead of this glossing over, um, you know, I'll tell you that the spiritual path of this show and of me, because it's somewhat of an ex- well, it's an expression of, of many things, this show, but my I can't really define very well where I am right now, except to mm-hmm. say that I am observing through conversations with a lot of people who may be saying, oh, think positive all the time, think positive all the time, you know, or your intent is so important, are beginning to come to terms with, yes, but sometimes, you know, you're taken on a journey. And and I'll hear this in different ways. Like, you know, sometimes things, maybe what you want, you don't get exactly, but, you know, this is happening because it's what you need. This is for your greater growth, growth, and that actually is what you want. And so... I'm finding a maturity arising, Bob, within many spiritual paths that might on the surface seem very glittery and, and, you know, oh, you know, whatever you want, you want that yacht, well, there it is. You know, you're not thinking hard enough or whatever. That's the surface, but below is what do you really need? Who who, who do you really need to be to be in joy and connected? Right, right. You know, I, I was greatly helped. And, I, I, you know, they say about, uh, I was a Jesuit for 10 years. You you alluded to that fact in the introduction. Yes. And I am so grateful for those 10 years that I was a Jesuit. Um, I was not ordained a priest. I was a vowed member of the Jesuit community and made a decision, a good decision to leave, with the help of some excellent Jesuit spiritual directors who were willing to give me the freedom to decide who I really was. They were not insistent upon my, you know, well, you, if you leave, you're making a mistake. The best yeah. ones that I work with didn't, can, you know, didn't make me feel that. They made me feel that I was in an honest quest. And the founder of the Jesuits, a guy named Ignatius of Loyola, uh, was a Basque. 
and he talked about the concept of discernment. And that's, that meant to look at the inner movements. He was really a psychologist before psychology became a formal profession. He, in his own life, studied his inner movements, the moments of consolation and the moments of desolation. And he tried to parse what the desolation was telling him when it was speaking to him and what his consolation was telling him so that he could be a little clearer. It's like you said, Susan, you know, I'm not sure where I am right now. Well, sometimes when you're hiking in the woods, you lose your bearings. Yeah. And then you just have to pause and take a look around. And in this case, you take a look around inside and you say, what is this telling me? Yes, yes. Where, you know, do I make a left turn here or a right turn here? Or do I just stay where I am for a little while until the fear subsides a bit because I'm feeling lost? And then I begin to move again one foot ahead of the other, slowly but surely. I think that's the only way it works. Yes. Trust your inner movements. And and get, you know, to speak with people who can be of assistance in helping you understand those. Good friends, spiritual director, whomever you trust. You know, the the irony of this is I find that, that, yes, there are people in my life like that, but also just the guess. I mean, incredible synchronicity. I mean, something, I, I think, Bob, that, you know, and this is, very much flows through your book that you know this we be we come to trust more and more that there is a god who loves us and is looking out for us and just provides exactly what we need you know at a certain time and and i i think that 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 becomes part of the journey is is how much can we begin to trust that um even in crisis which is a word that is explored in your book, and maybe you can define what crisis actually means. Yeah, I think we we look at the word crisis, and it it sends shivers down our spine. Yeah. At first. You know, crisis, oh my God, I'm in a crisis around this or that, a a romantic crisis, an economic crisis. And yeah, you're going to be scared. You know, there's no question about it. But crisis, if you go back and view its etymology, its origins, comes from a Greek word, which means to decide. Yeah. Crisis presents opportunity. However, you need to, again, put your feet on the ground, even though you're quivering, hold steady, and study what's going on inside yourself and around you, and not precipitously make a jump or a move. Trust that you can steady up and your your idea, you know, about God's presence. I mean, our book is really open and intended for for not just people who who have a concept of God. Both yeah. Carol and I do, but I think yeah. we think that there's a, a fundamental life force that's part of it too. For me, it's embodied in certain ways in my through my Catholic faith. But I think that everybody has some sense of something bigger than what we see, bigger than what we feel. And to trust that the ultimate, the ultimate point of that is life, not end, not death. Yes. And that's that's a that's a pretty hard one to come to terms with. I mean, even if you're a believer and have faith, you know, if you heed Rick Moody's, you know, summons to faith, there are moments when you wonder and you doubt and you fear, and that's yes. part of it too. Yes. 
That is part of it, too. So crisis, considerate opportunity. Aging is crisis. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've had a hip thing going on for like six, six plus weeks now. Pain, uh-huh. constant. And I finally got some, you know, got the right thing done last week. But I'm still learning. It's not abated completely. But even in the pain, I have tried to lean into it, you know, and just let it teach me what is it doing, what is it breaking down uh, that were illusions in my life. And I think that's so important that we get rid of the things that are the illusions we cultivate over time and are helped to cultivate by our culture, our families, our society, our churches. You know, those illusions need to get, you know, we need to get rid of them. They need to be shattered. Yeah. So important. How can we, Bob, both come to understand that there, you have a quote in your book about suffering. It comes up later, um, and, and you allude to it here. You've been in pain, you know. Um, yes. And, and there can be suffering in life. Um, um, and... How do we come, well, I don't even know if I want to say the word come to peace, but how how do we work with the concept of suffering and yet also a realization of the miraculous that, that we can also observe? It, it seems like they both exist, um, where, you know, there there can be these times of pain, and yet there can also be these these miracles, and what 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 is the nature of the miraculous? And, and again, these are questions that are somewhat unanswerable. But you're you're causing me to to explore with with what you've explored. Well, I, I think we're we're both in our dialogue even here, Susan. You know, demonstrating for the, the listeners that it, it is a process of questioning and yes. fashioning an answer for yourself. And and you're struggling with that. So am I. Around yeah. suffering, you know, with, with this pain, for example, what, you know, there were moments when it just didn't make sense. And when it yeah. still it doesn't make sense when it recurs. But what it's done for me is it's gotten me to so slow down that I can't be rushing around inattentively, getting tasks accomplished during the day. And I'm really good at that. I've got enough obsessive compulsiveness within me to, yeah. to you, know, you know, people can trust me to get something done. What's happened is uh, because of the pain, my, my mind is, is a little blurred because I'm fixated on it. It sort of has possession of me. And I've had to just sort of lay back and let it happen. And in the process, I think, um, I, I think the quote you may have been alluding to was this wonderful quote from Louis Lavelle, a French existential yes, philosopher. that's it. That's it. He, you know, he talks about, you know, the pain or the suffering that it, you know, it's the, it's the occasion for spiritual growth. And one of the ways it's the occasion for spiritual growth is it shreds away all the falsity. All of a sudden, you know, I'm not the, the football player who can, you know, run and sprint for a touchdown. I'm not the the husband who can go out and rake the leaves, and my wife instead is out there raking them. You know, all of a sudden I have to face that. You know, there's all these things are passing. I will I won't always be able to do the things I can do now, my human doing part. And what I've had to learn is lay back, and become the being part, and trust that 
the process of, of viewing what's going on, just waiting in a sense, waiting patiently in the face of what's going on to see, hopefully, and again, it's hope, which sometimes can verge on despair, hope that there will be some light uh, that will appear in, you know, in my vision of life. And that, that I think, is what, uh, what is happening. My mom, for example, she was a bilateral leg amputee because of rheumatoid arthritis and peripheral vascular constriction for the last seven or eight years of her life. Yet there was a peacefulness about her. Not that she was without suffering, but somehow she was able to come to terms with that. And she's been an example for me of a, of someone who, because of her deeper faith inside, which she wasn't particularly articulate about, but you had the sense she was well anchored. And that gave me hope, gives me hope to this very day. Yeah. And her example just means a lot to me. And we maybe we should look around, Susan, at those people in our lives whom we encounter who are, you know, not necessarily family or parents even, who we look at and say, it's amazing that that person is, is, continues to live despite the limitations. Yes, yes. You know, I had an experience just this last weekend, Bob, where I often walk here in the Pacific Northwest. It's one of the joys of my life right now to get out in nature. And somehow I found myself on the trail randomly, and I put this in quotes, on a very important day for me um, where I was pondering various things. Here was this woman in a wheelchair way down the trail. She was a mile down the trail, and she was propelling herself by the strength of her own arms down that trail. Total dirt. This is not a paved trail. Then I find, as I'm walking back, here's the man with crutches, the kind that are attached to your arms. He was literally dragging his feet behind him, literally. And he was walking. He was about done with the trail. And he was right next to another person um, who also had a limitation. And I'm observing. These people all were on my path, literally, for a reason. And, you know, you, you come... What that reason is, isn't totally obvious. There's the surface level thing of, wow, you know, keep at it. Look at these people. You can do it. You know, there's that. You know, we learned that. You learned that as a football player, Bob, and and you talk about a pretty honest experience there because, you know, sometimes we fail at that. Sometimes we're not the person on the trail who can propel ourselves solely with our arms, you know. And sometimes I feel, and with your book, gosh, it really had me working with this. It's still working with this, is the reality of sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm that person, sometimes I'm not, you know, that mm-hmm. that we're not always the bastion of strength, you know, um, but there are lessons here, inspiring lessons, all the same. Yes, and, and sometimes it's when we, we discover our weaknesses that we find a new kind of strength. Yes. A strength we didn't even know was there. Um, yes. You know, that we could, in fact, like that woman, you know, propelling herself. I'll bet she went through some really horrible moments in, in dealing with her situation, whatever that was the yes. cause of it or whatever was the yes. are the consequences yes. of it. And it's not like, you know, she just all of a sudden was out there on the trail. I think right. of the Boston Marathon bombings, the people who've come back from losing limbs, the woman who's now dancing again because she she loves to dance with her yes. prosthetic device. 
Yes. You know, there's there's something about that. There's another piece to the experience as you tell me that story, Susan, of being on the hiking trail there and the, the different people whom you saw. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's happened as a result of suffering for me is I am not as pushed away from the suffering of others. Yeah. When I was younger, um, I, you know, it's, you look, you kind of look the other way almost, not with disgust necessarily, but probably out of fear uh, at someone who's disabled. There was a guy who lived below me in college who had a wrestling accident. He was a quadriplegic, yet he was going to school. Yeah. With yeah. help and going to school. Yeah. So I think what what I've discovered is that those moments when I recognize other suffering and I can somehow identify with it, with it rather than push away, and I did that as a Jesuit Catholic chaplain at a medical center here in Boston when I was, oh, God, 40 years ago now. I remember the, the unit I had the hardest time visiting was the spinal cord injury unit. Oncology, no problem. Medical or surgical, I work with people, you know, we're with them, could be with them at their deathbeds. I could not go to the spinal cord injury unit for uh, for months when I began my chaplaincy. And then finally, slowly, I started going in. And I discovered that the dread within myself that I could wind up as immobilized as some of those people, given my background as an athlete. Now, I don't run the other way. If I were to get there, it would be tough. However, now I think the level of my compassion for others and my self-compassion have increased because I do not run away from the sufferings of others or my own. And I am so grateful for that. I feel more of a, an affinity for community in community with everybody. You know, not just the healthy, not just the strong, everybody. Yes. And I am one of them and they are one of me. We are one. You know, you say something so important because sometimes I I observe and it's it's within me too, it it can happen, is that there there can even be a judgment of suffering right now. Is that if if some if someone is going through something, it can be a very rapid response to Oh, you need to pray more. I've seen this. I, by the way, I am. Um, I come from a very strong. Well, my family was a combination of. They were converted Catholics, believe it or not, to evangelical <laughs> converted Italian Catholics, and uh-huh. I'm the granddaughter of an evangelical uh, minister. So there's this dichotomy of you need to pray harder, or you need to set your intent more directly, or whatever. There can often be this kind of preaching of you need to do this as opposed to just being with somebody in the midst of whatever pain they're going through. And and somehow we've disabled our ability to just be with another person because we always have this message of you need to do this. <laughs> and, yes. and where can we find that authenticity of compassion for ourselves and other people? Yes, and with the you know the aging being those who are older being one group that we push away from, you know the age yes. gratification that occurs is is striking. I mean, old people don't want to be there, um, and and yet it's when we allow ourselves, as you say, to get close that we we find out not only more about that person but more about ourselves. 
that we, in fact, um, become more human. I think that's what, if I had to say anything about where I am, I think I'm much more of a, of a mensch now, much more of a human being <laughs> than I've ever been in my life. And I don't say that with a, an air of braggadocia or pride. I just say that with a sense of sort of humble joy and satisfaction. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that's what we're, that's that's a state of being that I think is so valuable to be that in the world for oneself and for others. What a, What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. You know, so something I, I often observe in the older people on the trail, and you talk about this in your book, this notion of being childlike. Not childish, but childlike. There can be this incredible joy, and I come to know it too more and more, as I, more so as I get older. Um, and I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, Bob, this notion of being childlike and and define that for us well i i think my friends could probably give you a pretty good picture of bob's childlikeness but <laughs> uh, you know and again it's not childishness I'm, although i may verge on that at times even uh-huh. but um i think when you think about a kid and this goes back to something you asked earlier about questions when you think about kids they are unabashed about asking questions they are filled with wonder they look at the world with fresh eyes. You know, we, as we become older, we become a bit jaded. You know, oh, I've seen, been there, seen that, done that, no good. We get, we get really um, curmudgeonly, I think, even in the face of life, and cynical. Kids just, oh, my God, how, how come? That's, that's amazing. You know, the, the light you see in kids' eyes. And I think that wonder is a quality of childlikeness. And I've, I guess I've begun to appreciate my own capacity for wonder uh, as I, I face life. Uh, you know, even wondering about the bad things. You know, why did I suffer this hip pointer injury, you know, currently? what I know what caused it. I don't know why it's lingered so long. And I, I wonder. I wonder. And I loved, I studied French, and I'm pretty fluent in French. And the word for question in French is je me demande. And it also means I ask myself. I demand of myself. And I think that is what we need to do, is we need to wonder. And when you're a kid, you are capable of it. You're capable of awe. Because you don't have the answer. You're just looking at it and you're going, you know, the the it's the overused expression for me these days, uh, maybe it's passing out a bit now, but awesome. Do people really get what awesome means? Uh-huh. Awe is almost rendered wordless by the phenomenon you're experiencing. Yes. And having the mystery of what that is and what that means slowly emerge in your consciousness, in your mind, and in your heart. And then to be able to almost savor that sense, like a good wine, you know, where you, where you, 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 like some good, you know, Willamette Valley wines from Oregon. Uh, yes, yes. You know, where you, where you look at a good Pinot Noir and you, you know, you look at the color and you look at, all, you know, the, the, you taste it, the texture of it, the, all of that. And you clink glasses then to add the fifth sense because without clinking glasses, it's missing the, the auditory sense. That's why you clink glasses. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, you get a fuller appreciation of what that wine, what it took to produce that wine, the aging process that led to its gradual refinement, 
And then you go, oh, my God, and you can savor it. And that is amazing. And that's, that's what a kid does. Wow, these chocolate cupcakes are phenomenal. You know, <laughs> you know another glass of the chocolate milk, Mom. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's 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 just it's being a ki- it's being a kid, and uh, I, I I don't I I've never lost it, although I think I restricted it through my life because of the expectations there for me. And I think if you can be childlike, you you who are listening in out there, find a place to be that. And if you can't, ask yourself what's what's locking you in, what's keeping you from being that that childlike part of yourself. And again, as a psychologist, I see a lot of reasons that people's child is driven into hiding. And my my invitation to people in the therapeutic work I do is to invite that real, that natural child within to emerge more fully over time. And that's what I think this book does. It says, look, you get older. And because you get older, you're freer to be the child you are. You can be that more. And that's wonderful. To me... You know, the, as, as a Catholic, the, one of the passages that's always meant a lot to me is, unless you become as a child, you can't enter the kingdom. To really appreciate that which is the grandness of life is to be childlike, to have yes. different eyes. Yes. And if you can do that, you know, you're very, very fortunate. And, and, if, and it is very contagious, <laughs> I think my own childlikeness has invited a lot of others to become more childlike, this, despite yes. their reluctances. <laughs> yes. You know, you mentioned something in your book. I was going to say this in the intro. You know, sometimes I report what's the news of the day, although not often. But do you know what today is, Bob? You mentioned peanuts and how that, that has um, been something that um, you've enjoyed. Through the years. Oh, God. Is Charles Schultz? Today, yes, today is the 50th anniversary of, well, or at least this year, they're showing it tonight, I think, is the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of the of a Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, yes. Uh, on yes. television. Um, which, which I, and, and you know, you think about these things when you talk about being being childlike. It, it's like those sorts of things, they, they have meaning, those simple things. Absolutely. Um, they have meaning to us as we grow. Yes, yes. And uh I think Charles Schultz had had a was was a just a genius in the way he communicated uh-huh. truth about life through the interactions of the different kids in among peanuts. You know, the Charlie Browns, the yes. Lucys, the Pigpen, Snoopy. Yes. I mean, who who does not still enjoy those, and who who didn't experience it when you and I did earlier on, still doesn't get a sense of something incredible in Charles Schultz's vision. You know, uh, I I think you're right. It's uh, there, there's there's a lot right there. You know, yeah. and uh, no, it brings is. home hard hard truths sometimes, like Snoopy on top of his doghouse, which I mentioned in the book. You know, life is full of rude awakenings. Yes, and. Uh, and yet, waking up is so essential. Yes. You have to wake up. That's part of what spirituality is. It's about waking up. You know, for those in the Christian tradition, this time of year is called Advent. And uh, it's a time of waking up. One of the signature songs is Bach's Cantata, Wacket auf. In German, it's Wacket auf. Wake up. So 
my hope is that that book will encourage people to wake up and get rid of illusions. Yeah. You know, another piece of what we talk about in the book in terms of spirituality is spirituality is also never being at the mercy of any event, thing, or person. Now, who of us is not under the mercy of certain people, things, or events? Right. And when you live in that way, sure. you're locked in. The shadows always cast, and you have trouble seeing that sunlight that you saw this morning, you know, after the rain. You have trouble seeing it because all you see is the rainstorm. You know, you know that's a, a, so important. a song that keeps showing up for me is that little, and it will show up right on the part where it's an Eagles song where it talks about um, you know the chains. Now I'm not even I've heard it so many times and I'm going to quote it in exactly. But you know, so oftentimes we live our life in chains that we never even know we have the key. Um, it, it seems like these fortresses that you talk about, um, they they can be many in our lives you know what are these fortresses that we've created that are actually prisons and and mm-hmm. are we being handed the key can can we hand ourselves the key yes well you know as as kids i think one of the things i discovered in my psychotherapeutic work is that you know we we hide away the real child the the, the true self because it wasn't acceptable and then we but we know it's valuable so as a kid, what we do is we find kind of almost a little safe inside us, and we put the real part of us in there to protect it and make sure it doesn't get killed off. And we lock the safe, you know, and, and we, we take the key and we hide the key. And then we don't know where we put the key so that we can go <laughs> and unlock the safe. Yes. You know, so we've double protected ourselves. We've locked it in the yes. safe, hidden the key, and then we forget even if we start to remember that we put it in a safe, then we have to recover the key. And sometimes it's another person's words, another person's interactions with us that leads us to go, ah, now I remember where I put that key. And I go and I begin the process of heading back to that safe and slowly finding the hole, putting the key in and unlocking it and bringing forward myself. Yeah. Safely more safely than ever. Yes. And that's that's uh that is a big shift when that happens. A big shift. And then you can live, you can breathe. It's like getting a, a you know a, a multi-ton elephant off your chest. Your heart can pump, you can breathe freely, and you can live. And that's really the goal. I I mean, the work I do and the the book that Carol and I wrote is really about encouraging greater fullness of life on all levels, cognitive, emotional, behavioral, you know, really encouraging people to grow on all levels right up to the end, right up to that last breath. Yes. Right up. You know, I've got an unusual question for you, and I know it's coming rather late in the show, but I had an experience recently, and I I don't think he'll mind if I talk about this. This is something my son said to me. Um, Actually, as I was sending him off to college, it was was one of those um, pivotal moments, I guess. Um, Somehow in the conversation, Bob, because you talk about the inevitability of death in, in your book, and mm-hmm. I couldn't help but reflect upon this as I was reading this. Is my son is very interested in robotics, and um, he's he's very very intent on this 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 area. 
And we had this conversation about death, just out of the blue. Something about, well, you know, 40 years from, I can't remember how many years from now, but many, many years from now, Mom, we'll be talking about this. And I said something like, well, if I'm here that many years Mm -hmm, from now. mm -hmm. And do you know what he said, Bob? And I don't think he'll mind my saying this. He said, oh, you'll be here. By then we will have reached the singularity, Mom. And I said, the singularity? I said, the singularity, which is us being put in a robot. I mean, our consciousness transferred into a robot. I said, a lot of people, who's to say I would opt in? I said to him. And I found myself saying this, and I thought, wow. I mean, this is kind of a major thing, Bob. In our culture right now, we're not just talking about cosmetically freeing ourselves from death. We're talking about literally not dying, that we're going to... Now, as a spiritual person, this is a very deep question. You're never going to be able to address it totally. But there was something really powerful here that, because in your own life, you had to face the, the, um, you know, the inevitability of your parents' death. And, you know, anyone can be taken from us at any time and and what are we doing what are we doing in this culture where we we now are saying we're disabling death right there's one of my favorite show titles because it's such a teaching device is on Uh public television in boston it's called aging backwards Uh uh-huh huh aging backwards (laughs) aging backwards (laughs) (laughs) yes you know you never have to grow old now What's interesting, I think that we all, you know, there's a part of us, who wants to deal with death? I mean, Ernst Becker wrote his wonderful book, you know, The Denial of Death. I called, by the way, denial is uh, uh, the Cleopatra Syndrome. You know, she was Uh the queen of denial. Uh And, uh, you know, but what I I think you go, all of us go through points. And and I probably will go through it again where I will want to deny the reality of death, as as Thomas Gray said in his poem, Elegy in the court, Country Churchyard, you know, the inevitable hour. And uh, I remember when I was in graduate school, I was working on my master's, and I was, I think, unconsciously starting to deal with the reality of my parents' death, so I can identify with yeah. your son. Yeah. And I started studying gerontology. It was my way of trying to deal with the fear I had about the aging process in my folks. Yeah. And uh, it was, we call it in psychology, counterphobic, that is against the fear. Again, the title of your show, right? Frontier Beyond yeah. Fear. <laughs> but at that point, I was going counter to the fear by doing this study. Uh-huh. Well, you know, little by little, the realities, you know, came home. And uh, I, my father died in 84, my mother in 92. Uh, and, but I go back to something my mother gave me when I was somewhere between the ages of 7 and 11 when it hit me very profoundly that they could die, my parents. So I was very vulnerable then as a kid. And I remember getting depressed, really depressed, moping around the house, not being able to do anything. And my mother kept asking me, what's wrong, Bobby? What's wrong? Nothing, Mom. Nothing you know, with that bland, depressed voice. Finally, after several weeks, it took several weeks, she was able to get me to sit down, and she said, look, and she says, you got to tell me what's going on. Something is bothering you. And I looked her in the eye, 
and I burst into tears. And I said, you're going to die. You are going to die. And I had seen a show on television which brought home the truth of that. A particular character I loved had died. So here I was transposing it onto my mom. And she looked at me, and she didn't say, oh, don't worry about that. She put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, that's true. I am going to die someday, Bobby. And I thought, oh, God, I, I knew it. But then she added, you know, probably, though, not for a while, which was true. She died 39 years later. And her suggestion to me was, she said, so in the meantime, before that inevitable hour, if I can interject that, go out and play with your friends. Yes. I think that's what we need to do in the face of the inevitable hour, is to continue to live our lives, to live our lives, to play with our friends, not in a saccharine, maudlin way, but fully aware, not a Cleopatra, not in denial, fully aware that what we've got is what we've got right now. We don't know how much more we'll have. So what I've got, I've got to enjoy now. The people in my life. The joys that are there because of the work I can do. If I can hold on to that, you know, that's living. That's fullness of life. And I can feel that, even as I say it to you, Susan, I can feel the childlikeness in me sort of surging. (laughs) You know, I'm alive. <laughs> can, I'm alive. Yes. 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 That's it. That is it. it. And That's I know it. the truth that, that someday I won't be. Someday I won't be. But even then, I think that my my sense is that that life does not end. Whatever, I don't know what form it's going to take afterwards, but I think somehow the life force is something that you know, will will last. And maybe that's we all that's your son's word, singularity. Maybe that's what comes home to me. I think maybe then we realize that we're all united in that. That there's a singularity. Right. There's a, a kind of it all comes together in the end. Oh yeah. Oh life, I love that word all of life. singularity. Yes. For all that. of life comes together. Yes. Yes. Oh that's powerful. That is so true. You know, know, we are so rapidly coming to the end of the live show. It doesn't cut us off, but oh my goodness, Bob, what a what a gentle conversation. You know, I had all these notes. This happens everywhere. You know, I write these notes, the major themes of the book, but you know, I'll, we just gently walked through just who you are, and and I am so happy we we were able to have this conversation. Um, um, please do let the live audience know where they can find out about about your book. Well, the, the best place is to go to the website that Carol and I have created, which is uh, www.spiritualityofage.com. No spaces between any of the words, www.spiritualityofage.com. There you can, we have a blog going. You can also get excerpts from the book. You can find out more about Carol and about me. You can see the people who've read our book and endorsed it. Uh, And you can also um, order the book. There are multiple sites uh, at the end where you can uh, choose, you know, uh, Amazon or wherever, you know, um, whatever. There are five different, I think, choices. And you may find it locally even. I don't know. But our hope is that uh, people will avail themselves of that opportunity to... uh, to join us on that journey, to seek yes. with us. 
Yes, and, and, and hold on here for just a second. Quick note to live audience. Next show, December 2nd, 1 p.m. Pacific, Paul Boudreaux, Awakening Higher Consciousness, is coming on. So I had to get that out. And thank you, live audience, yeah. as, as we release you. And those in the podcast who've been with us all the, on, all the time, we'll, we'll talk just a minute more here at the end. Um, so, yes, I do encourage people to, to get your book, Bob, those that um, are called to, to really explore, because I feel my work with, with this book and, 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 and your work is just beginning here. I, I'm really delighted to have discovered you and Carol and, and what you're sharing here, because, um, you know, it, it really is reaching me. You don't have to be in your 60s or 70s. I mean, it's yeah. definitely reaching me at the age of 51, um, and um, I think it can can really talk to us all truthfully. So, so thank you so much, Bob, for being here. I really appreciate the work you're doing. Susan, thank you so much for uh, you. You really uh, your manner of, of uh, conversation really just enables another person like me to come forward, and I, I just appreciate your your style and your manner. And uh, I'm glad it went well. Oh well, 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 thank you. I I really appreciate that. And and truthfully, you know, I'm on a quest. I mean, these these talks. I I I hope that people are benefiting and. And I know that that you are touching. You're, you're certainly touching my life um, through this conversation and through any. Uh, and I know others as well. And I'm just so happy that that you were here with me today. So so thank you and thank you for being so authentically you. So thank you. Thank you, Susan. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, just a couple of notes for those of you listening in the podcast. Um, I I am so very thankful for the community around this show. I always want to say that because um, gratitude is is a very powerful thing um, that I I find expressing itself in more and more ways in my life, and and I'm thankful um, for for anyone that this show is reaching. I hope that it's helping you to reflect upon your life and the way it's helping me. I, I love these wonderful guests. Um, they they just help us so much to to really reflect upon the meaningful. You know, what is meaningful to us? You know, who are we really? These are the things that, that we are called more and more. So once again, just doing my due diligence here with the schedule um, FrontierBeyondFear.com is the place to go to find out about upcoming episodes. I have quite a few packed in here right before the, the holiday break. Um, I do have Paul Boudreaux coming on with Awakening Higher Consciousness on Wednesday, December 2nd, 1 p.m. Pacific. And then um, more shows to come after that. So please do check that schedule and um Thank you again for all of your support, for your prayers, for your energetic support, for whatever ways that you are are supporting the work that, that we're all engaged in here. So thank you so much, everyone. And until next time, I hope you, too, begin to explore the questions and simply accept that they are questions and they're well worth exploring. 
Take care, everyone. Thank you.